Hey, you kids, hush up. Can't you hear Marvin's own? Hello and welcome to Say It Loud. This is Marvin Franklin, your host. I'm so excited today. First of all, it's an absolutely gorgeous day here in the city of Detroit. And secondly, I am deeply humbled to have today's guest, Dr. Goldie Muhammad. She is currently an Associate Professor of Language and Literacy at Georgia State University. Additionally, she serves as the Director of the Urban Literacy Collaborative and Clinic. She strives to shape the national conversation for educating youth who have been underserved. She works with teachers and young people across the U.S. and South Africa in best practices in culturally responsive instruction. She also served as a school board president and continues to work collaboratively with local schools across communities in the Atlanta area. She also happens to be the author of one of the hottest education books right now, Cultivating Genius, an Equity Framework for Culturally and Historically Responsive Literacy. Her research interests are situated in the historical foundations of literacy development and the writing practices among the Black communities. Mm -hmm. uh, that's quite a mouthful, and I, I haven't even said everything just yet. Uh, but uh, there are a couple of things I'd like to go ahead and, and ask you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's been a full and productive day. So, yeah, wonderful. So my, my colleagues had, uh, they mentioned something about WOKE. You had an acronym WOKE in one of your sessions. What does WOKE stand for? I know what it says in, in my community, but what else is WOKE all about? Oh, well, you know, I was wearing a t-shirt um, that was created um, by hip-hop group 80s Babies called, and it said, Woke, we obtain knowledge every day. And I really liked it, and so I wore it. <laughs> so you're now at the University of Illinois at Chicago, is that right? Yeah, so I'm closer to you in Detroit. Um, we're, we're sort of neighbors in some ways. It's not too far away. And I'm back at my alma mater. That's where I received my PhD in literacy, language, and culture. Okay, so you do a lot of work in the summer too with uh, Black Girls uh, Write, uh, which reflects uh, literacy practices uh, that are found in 19th century uh, African-American literary societies. Yes. Okay. For the last maybe 12 years, I've been holding these writing institutes that are like about four to five weeks for Black girls that centers our, our identities, our histories, our genius, our brilliance. Um, and I've also been doing co-leading hip hop literacy STEM camps uh, for youth to do research and engage in creative writing and composition of, 
of art and music. So it's the summers are quite busy. <laughs> it sounds like it. So uh, I listened to one of your podcasts with another group the other day, and I think I heard you say that you were in Gary, Indiana. And Gary, Indiana is such a small city. <laughs> and I know there are a lot of great people that uh, come from that city. I happen to have been one of those that was born in Gary. Uh, is that true? You from, you have roots in Gary? Yes, I was born there as well. Hopefully I can be considered another great from Gary, Indiana. Oh, absolutely you are, absolutely. And I still go back, you know, every week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's been a while since I've been back. Uh, you know, my mom uh, is from Gary. My dad was from here and uh, my mom is gone. She's passed on. Mm. Uh, and, and my grandma. So I, I've got some aunts and uncles in the area, mm -hmm. but uh, for the most part, everyone has kind of dispersed a little bit, um, but uh, it's always near and dear to my heart. Yes. So the book is about an equity framework for culturally and historically responsive literacy. What is cultural responsive teaching and why is it so important? So culturally responsive and relevant teaching in short is when we teach and, and learn and lead in ways that is responsive, informed by our students' histories, literacy practices, language practices, um, languages that they speak, it is informed by their multiple identities, including their racial and cultural identities. And it's informed by their liberation and responsive to their liberation. Culturally responsive education has been, as we, as, with that definition in mind, it has been a practice among black people for centuries. We can date the practices of culturally responsiveness you know, certainly to the 1800s, early 1900s. And Dr. Gloria Lassing Billings formally um, did research and coined the term culturally relevant teaching in the 90s, which gave teachers a solution, something to sort of hold on to when it comes to practice. And, and so in addition to all that, it is being responsive to the social times we have historically lived in and we live in today. So when teaching is wrapped around those things, um, it is designed for culturally responsive education. Why do you think there's so much of a pushback when it comes, uh, some of our states, when it comes to critical race theory? Now let's bring in Dr. Sure. Ben Carson, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Doctor, it's really good to see you again. It's been a long time, but welcome back. Great to see you. Thank you. Always good to be now with get... somebody who thinks logically. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a compliment and I'll take it. Let's get serious. What's your take on critical race theory? Well, you know, we live in an amazing country. Uh, you know, I've, I've visited 68 different countries I've lived overseas. And it is an amazing place with amazing opportunities and an incredible history. And, uh, you know, critical race theory doesn't emphasize those things. It emphasizes the, the negative. And can you imagine what it must be like for a child growing up in today's environment 
first of all, you know, you got to wear a mask so you don't get to see people's expressions. That's an important part of socialization. And then you're told that you may be spreading disease and killing people, these deadly diseases. If you're white, you're told that you and your ancestors are responsible for all the evils of the world. If you're black, you're a victim. You can't make it. And then on top of all that, forget about biology, forget about science. You may not be a boy or a girl. So, I mean, and we expect these people to grow up and be normal. Are you kidding me? Well, you know, <laughs> Marvin, I, I think about that. I've been thinking about that along with so many other people. And, you know, I, I question how much folks love black people. Because if you notice, there wasn't pushback on feminism. They didn't say no teaching about women's liberation, women history and things like that, because that will make boys and men feel bad in the classroom. They did not say that. So notice what they did not push forward. They did not push forward anti-critical theory. See, critical theory is, 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 is a theory that helps to explain phenomenon. It helps to explain why people are oppressed, discriminated against, marginalized due to multiple factors, including race, gender, class, religion, sexual orientation, age, <laughs> ability, all these things. Why didn't they say no critical theory? But they specified the theory that relates more uh that relates mostly to black people i mean who's discriminated and hurt because of their race the most in this country one can argue black people and all the diversity that comes with blackness so this is not an attack on theory or <laughs> methods this is an attack on teaching blackness Black justice, black liberation, black identities, black genius, and black truths. This is what this is an attack on if you if you examine it closely. Why are people against it? I don't know why some folks don't love us. We are beautiful people. You must love us. Why not, I'd say. Why not? <laughs> and why are they against it? Because it comes from fear and ignorance. Folks have not read a lot of it. I'm hearing the rhetoric. I wonder, have you read books on this? And I'm not saying that in a funny way. I'm, I'm being honest. Like if you're going to speak about something so confidently, you must come well informed. And so they don't know and they, they rely on sensationalism to, um, hold on to, <laughs> And then they rely on that instead of finding out truth for themselves. And, and they think that somehow if we teach practices informed by this theory, we are making white folks look bad. And we're not, we're, we're making the oppressors look bad. If you are an oppressor, you know, why do you feel guilty for something that oppressors did in the 19, 1800. This is something you have to work through personally. If you feel guilt for something George Washington did, <laughs> come on. 
I'm struggling with uh, even listening to uh, certain people when it comes to CRT. Uh, I've listened to a couple of sound bites um, from, I won't even mention the name of the of the channel, but I will say that it is one of the most watched networks and Candace Owens and Ben Carson, uh, I think they always skirt the, the true question uh, to go back into their political, uh, you know, where they feel good about their talking points. But I think this is just entirely too important to, to, to just go over and, and not really pay a close attention to. And you're right to me, I think it's, it's a level of accountability, right? So mm -hmm. if we're talking about uh, just telling the truth when it comes to history, what is wrong with painting the picture with all of the people who were actually in it instead of creating something that isn't isn't true you know so it's it, it's tearing down a certain group and allowing another to believe that they uh, exist in this in this area that uh, of of greatness that um, is definitely flawed in, in my opinion I you know I, I have a hard time with that.
I'm going to go up there and act a fool. They're going to call, call the police on me and everything. You know, this Which is, is your opportunity to become a victim, by the way. Right, right. The police. Hey, yeah, I'm, hey, I'm going to get some money out of this. But <laughs> this is unacceptable. You don't brainwash kids like this. Let me tell you this. The people who are teaching their kids to, to love this country and to be accountable for your actions, they are succeeding. You are succeeding. I'm succeeding. When you look at this stuff, if you teach your kids to be a victim their entire life, they will be the bums walking around with no job, being a permanent activist. They're not gonna own businesses. They're not gonna make it up the corporate ladder. Nobody's gonna hire these people. I will never hire somebody that's sitting around making excuses. When I hire people, I do interviews and I talk to them. What value do you bring to the table? If you say something stupid, like systemic racism or something, I will never hire you. It People can, it does not matter what context you're speaking in, within families, within education, within business, the more you push that falsehood, you push the, you know, you want to promote falsehood and you push the truth down into the earth, it's always going to spring up toward the sun. And so it's going to happen. And, you know, historically, that's what people have done. They push the truth down and it always comes back up. So I'm not worried. It's like the concrete rose, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, no matter what, we still, we find a way, a way to make it on up. So there's a lot of context and, and there's so much that I want to address in, in, in this conversation. There was this statement that you started the book off with by uh, Mr. James Fortin. Uh, and I'd like to read it and I'd like to get a little bit of insight from you about what inspired you to use this particular piece in the beginning of your book because you start with the 1800s with uh, this framework and and the reasoning uh behind the reasons for the the need for cultural responsive teaching so uh just give me a second to go through this for my listeners and i'd like for you to just to give me some pure authentic thoughts about where you were when you decided to use this piece as part of uh, a linchpin for for that first chapter I conceive our literary institutions to have the power of doing. Yeah. It seems to me then that the main objects is to object is to accomplish an intellectual and moral reformation. And I know of but a few better ways to affect this than by reading, by examining, by close comparisons and thorough investigations by and exercising the great faculty of thinking. For if a man can be brought to think, he soon discovers that his highest enjoyment consists in the improvement of the mind. It is that will give him rich ideas and teach him also that his limbs were never made to wear the chains of servitude. He will see too that equal rights were intended to all. Then who would not wish to become inspired with the taste of reading, if it is the ability to create so happy a state of things as I have just described. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know, when I read it, I, you know, I just felt elevated. I felt joy. I felt beauty. I felt, yes, like we have been doing this and more. 
um, as a people and we are the model. That's what made me think of, you know, what better model than a group of people who have survived and thrived after chattel slavery and innovated and, and weren't just for the liberation of themselves, but the liberation of all, because he says equal rights were intended to all. He did not say for black people, notice. Right, right. And then he talks about happiness and joy in the same line almost as anti-oppression. I said, you know, this is a, spe a, a special group of people. <laughs> who can guide us, who can frame for us uh, teaching and learning and what we need to be doing today. Because if he said that in 1837, imagine what we can do today. So those were some of my first reactions when I came across this artifact. All right, so now I'm gonna put a couple of scenarios down because uh, I've got some, some teachers that are listeners, some parents, and uh, this is an absolutely amazing piece that you put together. Uh, how can a teacher begin to infuse your framework? This is the beginning of the school year. The kids are just coming in. Uh, I uh, am a fourth grade ELA teacher, let's just put that in there, who's been struggling with rigor and relevance. How can I do this? Yeah, so, you know, the framework that was derived from our Black ancestors in, let, in literary societies had uh, five different um, components, which they called pursuits. What they were, were standards for learning, but they did not call their standard standards. That is not a word that comes from us. It is, 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 they instead use pursuits because pursuits embody something bigger and larger than a standard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. Greater, right? Mm -hmm. And the five pursuits included identity, skill development, intellectualism, criticality, and joy. And so if a teacher is looking at these five components and reading about them through my scholarship, other folks scholarship, you're really saying, how does my teaching and learning, my unit plans, my instruction help to cultivate those five areas somewhere in that unit plan? Because traditionally we have been doing just one of those skills. We've been teaching skills, assessing skills and evaluating teachers and their ability to teach skills. 20% of, <laughs> of the model that ancestors left us with. So when we see 20% proficiency, we're operating at a 20% level. We have never really operated as the United States system as 100%. And so for teachers who are just getting started, you know, I tell them, take your current curriculum, your lesson plans and adapt it. Uh, ask, what's the new knowledge I'm teaching? Intellectualism. How does this theme of intellectualism connect to anti-oppression, hurt, pain, and harm, marginalization, to build a better humanity for all, a better environment. That's criticality. And then say, well, how does this connect to students' identities or teaching them about people who are different than them? That's identity development. The skills are already there. And for joy, ask yourself, how does this learning, learning this topic, help to elevate beauty and truth in the world. So you only get to joy when the first four pursuits are present. <laughs> if there's if there's oppression, it, there's no joy. 
right? There's no fullness mm-hmm. in joy as we all deserve to have. And so that's a starting point. Of course, teachers can start with, you know, three of the pursuits. Um, if they want to slow walk themselves into it, a lot of teachers I work with, they're ready for all five. And then you just, you teach it. That's why we were hired to be strong, excellent pedagogues. You teach it and then you get student feedback. How do students respond to these five pursuits in comparison to just the one? Yeah, I so I've worked with, uh, I'm a, a consultant, so I've worked with quite a few different schools and districts and I've noticed that uh, uh, those kids in those African-centered buildings and I'm not even sure if their mission and vision has been steeped in these pursuits, but I definitely understand and recognize that they they see their identity, they celebrate their identity, they uh, I think they have a level of joy as they promote each other. And I see that you you mentioned that you've got to have the three before you get to to the joy. Mm-hmm. But some of these elements and and I might be skipping a, a step or so, but it it seemed as if those kids seem to have their bucket filled with what what these pursuits much more than the uh, the standards. And I, I kind of like look at it as trying to put the pieces to a puzzle together mm-hmm. and not really having a, a, a chance to see what the picture looked like before you started putting it, the puzzle together, you know, so mm-hmm. or, or or a process to uh, try to figure out how to do it. Yes. OK, so I'll also say I come from a middle school. I'm a teacher. Another another situation. I, I'm a teacher. I come from a middle income African-American household. Uh, and this is my first teaching job. I'm so excited to be working here. Uh, it's a low, a low uh, performing school district uh, with high poverty. My district and school want me to focus on curriculum standards. That's, I mean, every time I talk to them, that's their, their focus. Um, but I just don't see any gains or any interest. Where should I begin with those pursuits that you just mentioned, or is there another key? So, you know, you got to keep in mind if if you're going to be against something, you need to know why I tell teachers this. Don't just say I'm against the standards. Why? What? What? Tell me. Tell me what you are against. And I would say the same thing for somebody who tells me that they are against critical race theory. I mean, I don't know how you can be against a theory that's been well researched over years, but You have to know why. You have to come well informed. Uh, What is problematic about the standards and what do you want in in place of it? (laughs) You know, when I was a first year teacher, I don't know how I knew to do this, but I never came into my principal's office without uh, a proposal in my hand. If I was complaining about something, I was proposing something for what I thought would be better at the time. And so, you know, I know why the standards alone are problematic because I've studied them intensely. But in this model that I propose in Cultivating Genius, you're still teaching the standards. That's the skill. That's the second pursuit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're still we're just teaching a higher level and advanced level of standards uh, than what we currently have. So when you are explaining to your principal, well, you know, I don't think these standards alone are enough, but how 
can I let me give my students four more standards to wrap around the skill based standards within the state so that it contextualizes these skills and connects to students worlds and to their identities and to their liberation. How about if I try this? How do you feel about that principle? And then you collect data to see how students respond. You know, teachers can't just show up and say this don't this not gonna work. You don't sound like a professional. But can you imagine if your doctor said that to you? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, that won't work. You gotta, we are professionals, right? And so, you know, that's coming with a more professional stance. I like that. I like that a lot. So uh, my last question or questions together. Uh, what should every middle school classroom library include and also include some of the titles that I should have at home? If I'm a parent, uh, maybe this is something that um, they won't be reading in school, but I, I believe that it's going to fill my child with the bucket of the necessary information to, you know, encourage them, excite them about that literacy piece, like what uh, James Fortin just mentioned. Yeah, so I think that when it comes to libraries first, um, the texts must be multimodal. You know, have some um, different modes of reading, not just print text, not just traditional books. Um, and the text should also be diverse across authorship, across time periods, across themes, have an anti-racism section, books on anti-racism, books on black girl literacies and black girlhood, have some sections that really speak to students' genius, their history and their identities. Um, make sure your, your books are diverse in levels. You know, sometimes we think, oh, this is a middle school. I only need middle school level text. You know, to some degree, as long as appropriate, but you know, you might be able to have you know, some Toni Morrison or something that they might read at a college level um, in, in the library. So it's just really about having multicultural texts, conscious centered texts, texts that center liberation and justice, um, have some historical texts. They should be reading from Maria Stewart and W.B. Du Bois and all these folks in the past. And the same, I mean, I could say the same for home. You know, a lot of times there's more electronic games and stuff than there are readings and books and literature. Have some some time set aside to read and think. Even if you're just reading a song lyric, or if you're reading, listening to a podcast, do these kinds of things together, you know? Um, and again, historical texts and contemporary texts. I really like the Brownies book. Um, it was a magazine for black and brown children and really all children in the past. I love reading from that. Um, I love Sankofa Read Alouds. I love organizations like We Need Diverse Texts and Disrupt Texts. Um, I like going to the Coretta Scott King Award winners. You know, so there's so many like organizations right now that have come together and said, okay, we're, we're doing books for black girls, um, books for black boys, graphic novels for teenagers. There are just so many people who have done the work. All we gotta do is Google and search for this. And then 
maybe, you know, pull from those texts. And lastly, I'll say for home and school, make sure that our texts when it comes to black children and black people are not just narratives of struggle, but just on black Say people. that. <laughs> you know, just on joy, um, just on, you know, um, the sunshine, you know, everything doesn't have to be like about slavery. So that's what I'll add to that. And, um, you know, be be inventive, write your own text together, you know, just have every moment. Um, think about how are we cultivating the genius in our family and how are we cultivating our joy? Also wonderful comments and statements. I truly appreciate uh, your time today uh, on Say It Loud. Uh, I also feel the same way about uh, painting a picture for us. It doesn't always have to be all inclusive of the pain without the joy. You know, yes. you, you can't have the joy without the pain, but uh, you've got to have a mix. You can't, you know, belabor those points uh, for our kids. I think for all of us, you got to have a little mix. So yeah. I, I'm excited about what you we probably have next coming up. You have any projects that you're working on? Anything? <laughs> Whatever God provides for me, I just try to follow that way. You know, I, I am working on the next book um, about genius and joy, and I'm hopefully going to do some curriculum project work. So we'll see. And every day I just try to be the best support for teachers, pre-service teachers, in-service teachers, leaders, parents, students, youth, everyone. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful day, a wonderful school year. Do your thing. And it's you truly go. been a pleasure. Take Thank care. Thank you so much, Marvin. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. to lose confidence in who we are, where we came from, and what we believe. As I said at Mount Rushmore, which they would love to rip down and rip it down fast, that's never going to happen. Two months ago, the left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. 
As many of you testified today, the left-wing rioting and mayhem are the direct result of decades of left-wing indoctrination in our schools. It's gone on far too long. Our children are instructed from propaganda tracks like those of Howard Zinn that try to make students ashamed of their own history. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. This project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. Nothing could be further from the truth. America's founding set in motion the unstoppable chain of events that abolished slavery, secured civil rights, defeated communism and fascism, and built the most fair, equal, and prosperous nation in human history.